My parents did something when I was a kid uh, to me that I have never recovered from. It's something that uh, you, you guessed, right? Yeah. My parents did something that I've never really been able to forget, never been able to get it off my heart. And here is what they did. My parents exposed me to stories like soul-winning stories or missionary stories or conversion stories. You know what I'm talking about? We would hear them around the dinner table or they would be in my dad's messages. And they're my favorite kind of stories. This weekend in Jonesboro, Tennessee, it's a national storytelling convention, uh, which is um, kind of fun. I would like to go there someday. But I will just tell you this, that the brightest and best of the world's storytellers are in Jonesboro, Tennessee, and they're telling stories this weekend, but none of them, none of them have a story as significant, as powerful, or as eternal as the simplest story of a sinner set free by Jesus Christ. There's no stories in the world like that. They're the best of the very best. I have a large personal library, thousands of books, so that when people come and see me, they think I'm smart. Um, And a lot of those books have stories in them. But there's never a better story than the simplest story about how somebody came to know the Lord. That's why one of my favorite things to ask somebody is, say, tell me, how did you come to know the Lord? And I like to listen while they tell me their story, because there's really never a boring story That's a conversion story. Am I right about that? And Jesus felt this way. He wanted to embed in our hearts a deep love for the conversion of people. He wanted to embed in our hearts a deep love for the stories of people's conversion, of their testimonies. And the proof of that I want to show you in our text for today is in Matthew chapter 9 and verses 35 through 38. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. We're on a wonderful journey as a church. A journey through one of the Gospels, the Gospel that we call the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's Gospel. The story of Jesus given to Matthew by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it's just fascinating. Every week we learn something more, or we concentrate on something more about Jesus. And of all the beings that have ever been, there's no one like Jesus Christ. No one who could capture our attention, or capture our heart, or rest our attention, our devotion, our love like Jesus. Can you imagine talking about anybody every week, and not getting tired of it, but Jesus? All we're doing every week is we come and we look at Jesus in another way, in a different way. And we see something very beautiful about Jesus. I want you to notice some things in the text here. Four things. Jesus taught in the synagogue. You'll see that. He he taught in a number of synagogues there. Jesus preached publicly and out among the people. This was the heralding part. So he taught in all the synagogues. And then he went out and he taught like from house to house or out in public places. And then he deeply cared about people's needs. He powerfully and deeply cared about people's needs. You'll see that here in these little, in this little short uh, text that we have today. And then we'll see that Jesus built a team to help him. So, these four things. He taught in synagogues, in all the synagogues. He taught. And he preached or he declared uh, the, the gospel of the kingdom to people outside of the synagogue. And then he deeply cared about people's needs. 
And then he recruited a team of people to help him. Now, this may not seem really significant to you, but it is very significant to you. And I hope it will just be ringingly significant before we go home today. That in your heart of hearts you'll see where you fit in all of this. Let's just read it together now, and then we'll talk about it some. Then Jesus went out... Excuse me, I'm sorry. Let's stand together while we read the Bible, okay? Stand up with me, if you will. Hope this isn't too much of an inconvenience. I know some of you have trouble getting up and down. Uh, but if you would, just uh, in honor of God's Word, let's read together. This is from Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35. Then Jesus went out about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like, like sheep having no shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. My Heavenly Father, our hearts are humble before you as we, as we look at your word, as we consider your word, and we, and we humble ourselves before your word we intend to obey you we desire to obey you and what you said to your followers there those years ago we trust would ring in our own hearts that we would do what you would have us to do even as they did what you would have them to do and so help us now as we intend to obey you and we look in your word and i pray lord that uh, I'm sure there are some who are with us today that just aren't really sure. They aren't certain. They don't have a sense of certainty about where they stand with you, about their soul's condition, about uh, whether they'll go to heaven when they die, about whether or not their sins are forgiven, about who you are. And they have question marks in their hearts, and, and they're just questioning and needy. And I pray that you would give special light. I ask, Lord, that you would open up the eyes of people who are here in this room to understand the mystery of the gospel today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, be seated. Jesus went in all the cities and villages. Josephus, a Jewish historian, said there are over 200 cities and villages there in that region. The villages would be cities without walls, and cities would be cities with walls. Jesus systematically then went to the synagogues, and when you would go to a synagogue, a visiting teacher, rabbi, would go to a synagogue, they would read the portion for the day, and Jesus would teach it. This was more, the synagogue is the word for school that we have. So Jesus was teaching. He was teaching the Bible. And so it's very similar to what we're doing when we go from passage to passage to passage to passage, just saying, what's the passage for today? Let God's Word speak to us. And then we explain to the best of our ability what the Word of God, uh, what the Word of God is saying. Get the sense of it. But then he would go out, as it, as it says here in verse 35, he went into all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and then preaching the gospel of the kingdom. This he would do outside of the synagogues. This is the herald word. The preaching word there is that uh, caruso, that herald word, the word that's so beautiful in the Bible that you'd be a messenger from the king. We've talked about this before. A messenger from the king. He has a word from the king. He goes out publicly and he cries out declaring the message from the king. And the message is good news message. In this particular case, that's why it says gospel. 
It's very similar to our name as church. Evangel. Good message is what our church's name means. He had a gospel message. The, the, the rule of Christ is here. And he's proclaiming the gospel of the rule of Christ, the kingdom of God. And so he did that outside. This he did obviously in one-on-one face-to-face meetings with people. This he did in outwardly declaring, sometimes in an outward kind of open-air preaching kind of a way. This he would do in the homes of people where they would gather and sometimes with food present, but he would preach the gospel of the kingdom. But that's not all that he did. He taught in the synagogues. He preached the gospel of the kingdom among the people in public. And he had deep compassion for people in their needs. And he actually performed miracles, helping them with healing and so forth. And so it says here, and healing, verse 35, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. It's interesting here, why did Jesus heal? Why did Jesus heal sickness and disease? A couple of things I want to suggest. One, he healed, and this is common in the New Testament. He, the healing, Jesus healing and apostolic ability to heal people was tied to his message. In other words, to authenticate his message, he did miraculous sign gifts. So to authenticate who he was, or to establish his authority, or to verify and to validate what he was going to say, he's bringing a message that's different than the common religious guys were giving. And so people would hear that message and say, it can't be right because it's different. And then he would heal people and cast out demons. And so that tended to validate, tended to vindicate, tended to authorize, um, it tended to give him authority for those who heard. But a second reason that Jesus would have healed is that he wanted to establish the character of God. He wanted to display the character of God. God loves people who are hurting, who are tormented by demons who are sick. And so Jesus is coming, he's displaying the character of God and doing that. I, uh, God, we want to know, we want to understand that God always has and always will desperately care for people. Cares about people. And because he cares about people, we should care about people. Because he cares about people, we should know that he cares about us. Now the people that he cared about weren't perfect people, were they? They were sinful people. It's like you are, just like I am. And so Jesus didn't discriminate and say, I'm going to care about people as long as they're good people that don't do bad things. He didn't do that, did he? Jesus cared about people even when they got themselves into messes. He cared about people suffering even when their suffering was a result of their own sin. That ought to be an encouragement to a lot of us today. Does that encourage anybody here? Jesus cares about you even if you got yourself in a mess. He still cares. That's who he is. And this isn't just here. I mean, throughout the passage, uh, throughout the Scriptures, you see the continual, unrelenting compassion of Jesus. People who say that Jesus lives in them should be compassionate people. We should care about people. We should love people that are unlovely. And we have within us, in our flesh, in our old person, if we have in us kind of a dislike or a contempt for people because they do things we don't like or because they're just irritating or because they're yucky, then we should realize God overpowered that with the, you know, you, you have, uh, you're indwelt, by, if you're a Christian, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. So, so Jesus, that's why we say to little kids, we say, sometimes we say, ask Jesus in your heart. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, a way of, of describing the theology of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Okay, if Jesus, the compassionate one, is living in your heart, then you should care about people. And if you don't, something's hindering the Spirit in your life, right? Something's hindering Him. 
I've been thinking a lot about this. I've been praying a lot about this. I'm just, I have a burden boiling in my heart for this area. And uh, I'm just stirred about it. I, it. It won't stop. You know, I'm not alone. Obviously, we have, uh, we have a pastor. Fr- I have a pastor friend who's present who I think pastored, help me, Arlene, 50 years. How many years? I- introduce him. Let's just introduce. Would you? I'm sorry. This is a... Fifty years. Let's give him a hand for his faithful service. <laughs> Pastor, he and I, he and I conducted a funeral together. Arlene's mother and and um, fifty years of service to the Lord. This man carried a burden for Wyandotte, for this area, on his heart for half a century, still living. So it's still going on. How about you? If Jesus lives in you, you got a burden for the people you live around. That will not go away. And this week I was praying about that. And how can I reach people? How can I, people who so need the Lord, what could I do to inspire you and help you? So that together, not to badger you or to put you down, I don't want to do that at all. But how could I, as a pastor, how could I inspire in you an involvement in seeing people come to know the Lord? How could we do that? That's just a burning thing in my heart. I read a little book this week. I ordered from a guy who was a really faithful evangelist. And it was a little small book, so in about an hour and a half I'd read it. And one of the things that the guy said in the book was that what you ought to do is you ought to pray continuously that God would open up people's hearts to the mystery of the gospel. Because, you know, that's true. Nobody gets saved until the Holy Spirit opens up the heart of somebody to the mystery of the gospel. And so I, I pray. He said, you should pray that a number of times a day. So I'm sitting in my office and I just pray. Just stop, put my hands up in the air. And I said, Lord, send me to peace. People whose hearts are open to the mystery of the gospel. I won't be shy. I'll tell them, send me. And then I, I, I needed to run a little errand, so I stopped at a gas station. There's a girl in there, and I'm thinking, well, who, maybe the Lord has opened her. Because I prayed two or three times now that the Lord would open people's hearts to the mystery of the gospel. So maybe this girl's heart is open to the mystery of the gospel. So I'm trying to think of a way to talk to her about the Lord. So I go up there. It's just a gorgeous day. It's just a gorgeous day. So I say, isn't that a beautiful day? She said, it is. I go, so what do you think? You think stuff like this just happens, or do you think God did it? She goes, well, I just think it's nature. I said, well, no God then, huh? And she goes, well, I'm not saying that. You know, it's kind of like, oh, this isn't going very well. And I said, well, you know, have a great day. And then I left, and I thought, well, that was bad, you know. And I drove away, and uh, thought, well, and then I, I prayed some more. I said, well, Lord, you know, I, I mean, I'm willing to be used of you. We had a deacon's meeting that evening. I had a little window of time to go home and spend a little time with the family. I sit down in the chair and the doorbell rang and, and uh, the dog barked. It's some not family. The dog has a sensor on him. If it's not family, he barks. So the, he barks. I'm like, there's somebody there that's not family. So uh, it was a little girl selling stuff. And, and we were just sending her away. You know, and It just hit me. I was like, maybe I should talk with her. So I saw her parents were out there. So um, I, I said, hey. Uh, what, what's your name? She said, Hannah. I'm like, oh, I, I like that name. And I, we got a Hannah. That's a Bible name. Her mom, uh, her mom and uh, dad were there and little sister, and she's standing there, and we ordered some pizza and got to talk. And I said, have you ever heard about your name? And the mom was really, really interested. I, no. I, so I just gave her a little short talk about one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible. The lady the priest thought was drunk. Because she so prayed for a baby and they were making fun of her. 
And what a sad story. What a beautiful story. And Samuel and all of that. And I was watching and I saw in the mom's eyes, I saw her eyes just like pool of tears as she listened to me tell it. So she said, that's a beautiful story. I said, you know, the craziest thing is I'm sitting in my, my chair in there. Today I've prayed a number of times that God would help me bump into somebody whose heart was tender. And it seems like your heart's tender. And she said, oh, yeah, it is. We, we really, we need help. <laughs> and so she might be here today. And she said what I think every time I get up in the morning. And that is, hey, Lord, it's me again. I'm back. I need help. <laughs> Amen? Are you with me? I don't mean you with me. You get up every morning and say, oh, Lord, I love you. I need help today. You know I need, you know I need help. There are people around us who need help. They hurt. They don't know it's Jesus they need. They don't know that Jesus has the... To them, it's just an old book. they got to have a miracle of enlightenment that the Spirit of God would open their hearts and they would see, it's Jesus that I need. It's not more money that I need. It's not a better job that I need. It's not a nicer house or a nicer neighborhood or a different husband or a different wife or more well-behaved kids. It's Jesus that I need. They're so needy and Jesus knows this. And if we love Him and if He lives in us, then we should have this like burning desire to help people who have needs. I heard. And, and when we do that, we should do it in a way that's uh, interesting. Jesus said He was not shy about teaching. He was going to the synagogues and he's teaching. He was not shy about proclamation, preaching, heralding. He wasn't shy about that. But he didn't just, you know, pelt people with gospel rocks, right? 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 The answer is right. You're right, Pastor. Talk to me. Come on, people. Of course I'm right. Because the Bible says he healed people. He's going around healing people. That's not pelting people with gospel rocks. If you heal somebody, that's amazing. You touch a leper. You hang out with people that nobody wants to be around because their sin has so messed up their life. He wasn't just pelting them with gospel rocks. I heard a story about Rebecca Pippert. She's an evangelist gal. She's a, she, she was speaking at the um, Luzon Conference on World Evangelization. She's written books on evangelism. She's involved in personal evangelism a lot. Written some neat books about that. She said she was in Chicago one day, and it was a hot day, and her car window was rolled down, and another lady pulled up beside her in the car, and her window was rolled down, and she looked over, just glanced over for a second, and the lady in the other car was looking at her funny. And so she kind of looked back, and the lady had this really weird look, and she didn't know what that meant. And, and all of a sudden the light turned and the lady hurls something over and it hits her in the face. And then the lady speeds away and she looks down and it's a, it's a leaflet. It's a, it's, it's a, and she picks it up and it's a gospel leaflet. <laughs> yeah. And she, she says, Rebecca Bibbert <laughs> said, Jesus didn't call us to do torpedo evangelism. <laughs> But I'm like, well, at least that poor lady with the tracks was trying to do something, right? She was trying to do something. Uh, Paul Brand, a physician who was raised in India, his grandmother was a missionary in India. His father was a missionary in India. And, and they were there and they labored for seven years before the first person came to know the Lord. And the way that they got converts was they cared deeply about the problems that people had. And they got involved in their lives. And one of the things they discovered was that they would have this, um, this uh, parasite that would get in their legs. And it was because of the cycle, the life cycle of the parasite, the grandmother 
under, realized that it was because they waded in their, in their water. And so she would ride on horseback over two mountain ranges. She would ride on horseback to village after village after village after village. And she would simply teach the people to build walls, rock walls around their wells, so that their feet wouldn't go into the water. And she eradicated that parasite in all of the villages of two mountain ranges with her life. And she gave the gospel to the people, and they listened because she helped them. And her, her grandson, Paul Brand, said, do you think it would have had the same effect as she had flown over and dropped leaflets on the villages? She got in among them. That's what Jesus did, and that's what we need to do. Get in among people who hurt, care about them, love them, have compassion for them. He, and verse 36 says, when Jesus saw the multitudes... He was moved with compassion. Compassion means suffer with. This was a unique thing. Frequently, if you, it would be a really interesting study if you would take that word. It's, it's, it's um, a word that's uniquely used of God in the Bible. And if you would take that word in, the, in Jesus alone and you look through the New Testament and see the different places where the New Testament talks about times when Jesus was moved with compassion, it would be a great study. Just to see the kinds of things that move Jesus' heart with compassion. But he wants us to have that compassion too. 1 Peter 3 8 says, Finally, all of you be of one mind having compassion for one another. And love his brothers and be tender hearted and be courteous. This is compassion that we should have for each other. And that's hard enough. But it's compassion that we ought to have for people who don't know the Lord yet. Sincere compassion. They were weary and they were scattered like sheep with no shepherd. The idea here is that it's like they were attacked by ravenous beasts and left lying bleeding. They're ravaged. That's the way we need to see people who don't know the Lord. Like they were attacked by the enemy and torn by the enemy and weary. And that is true. And that's the way Jesus saw them. And it's the way that he wants us to see them. And he said they're like sheep that don't have a shepherd, which would have been an in-your-face indictment of the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees called themselves the shepherds of the people. But he's like, these people don't have shepherds. They've got people that are laying rules on them. More rules than God has. But they don't have people who care for their souls. interesting that's i can always tell i need to stop and preach because i get like one like kind of like kind of weak amen it's like okay let's back up and talk about that some right there i'm not picking on you i'm just saying listen this is not our job it's not our job to go out with a book of rules and lay it on people who have no means to keep rules without christ how in the world how in the world we may preach the god we may teach the law to people And we follow the law with the refreshing gospel of the grace of the living God so that they have an idea how they can live lives that are pleasing to God and how they can be right with God. The Pharisees, they laid laws on people and they put laws on top of laws, but they didn't go out and minister to the flock. They didn't have the heart of the shepherd like Jesus. That's what we need to have. And that's what they had. In verse 37, he said to the disciples... Notice this. He says to the disciples, verse 37, to the disciples, he says, to the disciples, he says, the harvest is plentiful, uh, but the laborers are few. What did that harvest is plentiful mean? In, in the Bible, it, it, it can mean two different things. One, it, like in the book of John, it was obvious from the context that what Jesus was talking about was look at the people who potentially could be saved. 
In other words, there are people who are open. There are people who are willing to come to me. They're the harvest. They're white and the harvest. That's what it meant in John chapter 4 when Jesus was talking about that. Sometimes that's what it means in the Bible. Look at the potential, the potential of the people that could be saved, that are prepared to be saved. But there's also another thing that's true in the Bible. If you study the whole Bible and you look at harvest in the Bible, even though we love autumn and we love the fall and we love the harvest and it stirs up warm images to us, in the Bible it often is referring to a time of pending judgment, a harvest of, of the ages. He's saying there, and I believe he's saying these things, he's saying to his disciples, look out there and notice that there are people who would come to me if we would go to them. And he's also saying, and look what's happened to them. They're headed for judgment. That's what we've got to believe if we're going to make a difference where our church is and where you live and where you work. You've got to recognize that there are people who are there that would know, they would come to know the Lord if you would go and you would pray for them and you would love them and you would graciously tell them about Jesus Christ. And you've got to know that if they don't come to know the Lord, they're going to hell. They're going to judgment. They'll face the judgment of God someday. And you can't pick and choose and take the things out of the Bible that seem all warm and fuzzy and leave the hard parts out. You can't do that. The big idea here is coming. Look in verse 37. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And now you expect him to say what? So get out there! Right? Did you expect him to say that? That's what I would expect. So get out there! He says, look at me. I teach in the synagogues. I preach in the streets and to people. I have conversations with people at wells and so forth when I go about my daily stuff. And I help people. I care about people. I'm compassionate. Now look out there. The, the harvest is plentiful. Now what do you expect him to say next? Get out there and do something about it. But that's not what he says. Isn't it interesting? And the harvest, he says what? He says a very beautiful thing, a very thought-provoking thing. He says, I want you to pray to the Lord of the harvest. I don't know about you, but that's just, that lands beautifully on my soul. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. You're not out there working alone. There is the Lord of the harvest who's overseeing the harvest. He's the Lord. He cares more about it than we do. The Lord of the harvest. We, here's the plan. Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. What do you pray to the Lord of the harvest? When you see that there are people that could potentially know the Lord. When you see that there are people that are on their way to hell then what do you pray to the Lord of the harvest? What do you pray? Well, the tendency, we, we would think, well, you pray, God, save those people, right? Well, that's right, but that's not what Jesus says here. Jesus doesn't say pray for their, their salvation, even though the Bible does teach that we are to pray for their salvation. That's not what Jesus says to his disciples here. He says something strategically different. You've got to kind of ask yourself the question, why did he say pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into the harvest? Why did he say that? He wanted his disciples to understand that it wasn't going to require prayer, but it would not be prayer alone. But that God's way of doing things was when there were people that were ready for harvest, he would send other people to go and get the harvest. And the reason that we know that is because if you look in chapter 10 and verse 1, just right immediately after he says, pray for the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth labors in the harvest, he goes, you, 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 and you, go. It's like... I don't know what, when the prayer meeting was. It was between chapter 9 and 10. But he chooses disciples and he sends his disciples. This is pretty interesting. He's looking for laborers. He wants us to pray for laborers. We can do that as a church. I, so I'm just, my heart is burdened about this. 
And I've been reading and praying and thinking about this and talking about it. If you know me very well, you're tired of hearing me talk about it. It's all I talk about. I talk to people about it all the time. I've had conversations with dozens of you about this. I like our church. It's a wonderful church. But we got, look around, look at the empty spots. You know, looking around. It's like, doesn't that seem wrong to you? Does that seem wrong to you? You ever take a Sunday off? Don't lie to me. <laughs> and you're like out and about, and you're like, wow, a lot of people don't even have the foggiest idea anything's going on here in this building. It, we could very easily kind of like bury our heads in the sand, plug our ears to the cry of the world, shut off our heart to how needy and how lost they are, and not realize how many people the fields white to harvest. They're people who need the Lord. This church is called Evangel. <laughs> I, I like this church. You're not getting me wrong here. I have a Jeep, red Jeep. My wife bought it for me as a gift. Came in a little bit of money, and instead of going and buying something for herself, she knew I liked this car. She went and bought this car that I like. She gave it to me as a gift. It's a beautiful car. I like it. Nothing wrong with it. It wasn't when we bought it. There was nothing wrong with it when we bought it. And... and and I love driving it. It's just, I don't drive it much. The kids drive it more than I do. But I love driving it. And I love, I love it. But it has a problem. And that is, it has this, um, it has a mechanical problem. You get up to about 50 miles an hour, and it has like a death wobble. And all the guys in the church that are mechanically inclined are making notes, and they're going to come to me afterward, and they're going to help me. And that's why I use illustrations like this, you see. Um, I already have one brother who's, told me he, he thinks he can help me with it, and he's going to this week, so I'm grateful for that. But it's a good car, but it's out of line. There's something wrong with it. And I feel like that's the way our church is. A few weeks ago, I took my tie off. Remember that? I hope you'll never forget it. That was just like a demonstration. It's something we've got to change. And let me tell you about what it is we need to change. Not cosmetic changes. Not changes that we have to confess to God and ask forgiveness for. Not changes that make us more like the world. I hope you didn't hear me saying that. Changes that will align our church to be what God wants it to be. Changes that will align our church so in such a way that evangelism is happening so that your kids and my kids and your grandkids and my kids would say, I've got to be there because I've seen people's lives change in that place. They have baptisms and people give testimonies about how God set them free from things. Listen, my friends, if we are happy with the way things are, we don't have the heart of Jesus. If we're happy with the way things are and we don't want anything to change, we are not right with the Lord because here's some things He wants to change. These are things that He wants to get us involved in. He wants our hearts to beat with His heart. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Pastor, I'm not really sure you know, that you're going to give me a tongue lashing about this and, and then I'm going to try harder this week and I feel like a hamster on a wheel and I don't know if I'm going to be able to make you happy, Pastor. That's not what we're talking about. I'm just saying, let's start with this. Let's start with the confession that the church has a death wobble. Let's just start with that. Let's just say, it's a good church. I like it. It's a gift. But here's what I'm describing. In our church, the way, the way we describe our church, we like to say that there are some key values that we have. And maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you were involved in formulating this. It's a very good idea. Like, for instance, evangelism is one of the things. Evangelism means you go out and you declare the good news and people get saved. 
And then edification, what does that mean? That means you build them up, you teach them, and you instruct them, and you build them up, right? And then equipping, that means that you help them get involved in Christian service, and you train them how to do it. And then fourth, it's exaltation. They worship God. It doesn't all happen in order like that. It all happens kind of together. Evangelism, right? Edification, right? And then we have equipping and we have exaltation. That's a good thing, but here's the deal. If you're honest, you have to admit that our church does a lot of edification. And it talks a lot about evangelism, right? We do a lot of edification, and we talk a lot about evangelism. But we are in a time, whether we like it or not, when things are changing, and some of the things that once worked aren't being used of the Lord like they were used of the Lord at one time. Otherwise, what we would have is we just call an evangelist in on a Sunday night, and we were, or we, and we say to that evangelist, you know, do your thing, and then people all come here and they hear the gospel, and then we have a steady stream of people coming to know the Lord. But you don't see that happening. Now, I, I, I want to fix all that in one message here. What I want to do is I want to irritate you. I want to stir up your heart. I want to create a disequilibrium. I want to point out that the church isn't what it ought to be unless there is an aggressive and effective and obedient evangelist, unless evangelism is happening like it ought to. In other words, if we say, well, we get together, we worship, good, we should. If we say, we get together and we teach people, that's great. But what, what if what we do in evangelism doesn't work and isn't working, and we're not seeing people come? We see a trickle of people coming to know the Lord. Don't miss the service tonight. A very interesting service tonight. We have a, not only do we have a missionary, we have baptisms tonight, and a service tonight, and testimonies you'll be interested in hearing. We thank God for anything God is doing, and God is at work. But we cannot be satisfied that what we see is pleasing to the Lord when, there are, when the fields are so white. On the harvest. And so we get back to this point, and you might say, Pastor, I hear you talking. You're making me nervous. What do I do? And then I look down here and I see what Jesus said Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. These letters are read in my Bible. That doesn't make them any more the Word of God than the black letters. Jesus, he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers in your harvest. And can I say, look at chapter 10 and get ready to go when you do that. Because when you start saying, God, in other words, we're not just saying, God, save my brother. Save my brother. Save my brother. That's not what he said to pray. Although it's okay to say that. He said, God, send somebody to lead my brother to Christ. Lord, send somebody to love my brother. And then all of a sudden, when you're praying that, you've got to go, how can you not how can you not ask how do you want me to be involved in that but i'm getting ahead of myself in other words what i'm saying is this even though we have a nice church and we have programs that function nicely and they make us feel nice and warm and good things happen we cannot be satisfied with that we cannot be satisfied because of the death wobble because we don't have the proper alignment because we don't have the proper balance and so we need to find out what God would have us do in order to reach people who don't know the Lord. And this can be a very, very exciting time. But it's going to require humility on our part first as a church. Where we just have to say, Lord, we're willing to admit that, that our best days of evangelism have been in the past. But we want our best days of evangelism to be in the future. Because there are people still being born 
There are people right now who will ne- they don't really know and they don't really care what our history was as a church. They're too busy trying to keep their family together. They're too busy trying to stay ahead of the cancer diagnosis. They're too busy trying to help their kids figure out how to live in this cruel world that we live in. They don't have time to, you know, to sit around and help us maintain a museum. What they need is people who will come alongside and care and have compassion and listen to them until they realize they care. And then maybe then that we pray for them and then the Holy Spirit enlightens them to listen to the gospel. And then they understand the mystery of the gospel. And then their lives are changed. And now things get really exciting. That's what I'm talking about. Somebody said it like this. It's like the trellis in the vine. Have you heard this? It's like a person that builds this beautiful trellis to, to grow a grapevine. And he has this design for the trellis. And he spends all this time building the trellis. And then he maintains this trellis and he protects the trellis, but he never plants anything and nothing ever grows on it. The church can be like a trellis without a vine if we do a lot of things to kind of keep the outside going and we kind of paint it and keep it nice and we come every week and we look at it we go, now that's a trellis right there, look at that. But there needs to be vine work like face-to-face, evangelism, discipleship. We've got to have this missionary mindset. In other words, what, God, what we need to have by God's grace is the kind of an attitude like we got dropped in here like special forces in a very dark, difficult, dangerous place. And there are people everywhere that are going to be terribly treated if we don't go and rescue them. It's like what would happen if we had no church and you were the Christian that got dropped in here by a helicopter, what would you do? you gotta, you got to figure out a way to work in the harvest in such a way that the Lord would use you to help somebody else come to know the Lord. That's what I'm talking about. And I believe that's what Jesus wants us to do. This was to his disciples, and we'll see. In the whole tenor of the book of Matthew, you might say, well, Pastor, are you lifting this out of context? By the way, that's what people always say when they're under pressure, like, you're taking that out of context. Are you sure about that? Let me put this in your context, all right? When this gets to the end of Matthew, you know where this is going? You're right. He said this to his disciples, and he he sent them to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and he didn't tell us to do that. In a minute, he's going to say, don't tell the Gentiles, but he's going to tell us to tell the Gentiles, right? When you get to the end of the book of Matthew, you know how it ends? I'm just kind of, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's going to be two years until we get there, so I'll just like kind of let you know ahead of time. What does it say at the end of the book of Matthew? Go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all the things that I've commanded you, and I will be with you, I will empower you. I'll be with you until the end of the age. That's what he's going to say at the end. So it's no taking this out of context. This is what it says. There should be, understand this, I, I am, uh, I, I'm not a farmer. I'm really not even a good gardener, but I've been uh, from farm people, and I've been blessed to pastor among a lot of farm people. And there's something that I have noticed about farming, especially at harvest time. And that harvest time requires a special vigilance. If you're a farmer, you know what I'm talking about. If you're from farm people, you know what I'm talking about. There's just that time of the year when harvest time comes. And there's a special enthusiasm. There's a special intensity to the farming when it's harvest time. There not there a special cooperation? If you're from farm people, you know farm people all get together and they don't fuss at that time. Not a harvest time. They can't afford to. they got to get the harvest in. The, 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 the often you will see wives staying up into the nights and bringing food out to the... Sometimes you see wives operating the combine or the corn picker and they're out there working in the night. My own grandfather, he had a small farm. 
and he had a one-row corn picker. It was old. If you had it today, it would probably be worth a lot of money. A one-row corn picker. He pulled it behind the old Ford 8N tractor, and he operated that whole business on his own. He would pull that through the cornfields and pick the corn one row at a time, and it would spit out into a wagon in the back. And he had an old neighbor. His name was Kaler. And he told his neighbor, he said, after I harvest my corn, he says, I'll come over and I'll harvest your corn. They just had, they had some uh, beef cattle, so they had 16... 18, 20 acres, a little tiny operation. And so it wasn't a huge thing, but it was important. So he told his friend, he said, I'll harvest mine, then I'll harvest yours. And then he, got, he worked at Owens Corning Fiberglass in Newark. So he got called in uh, late at night, and he got called in to work long days. So he's going to work in the morning before the sun uh, came up, and he was getting off at night after the sun went down. And then, uh, to complicate that, his corn picker broke down. And he, he looked into it, and they said, well, we can fix it, but we've got to send for a part, and it'll be three weeks. So he's sitting at the kitchen table with Grandma, and he's saying, I don't know what I'm going to do. He said, um, you know, I can go out there, and I can pick my own corn by hand. I did that when I was a kid. You cut it with a corn knife. You throw it into the wagon. You've got to stay up all night if you have to. He said, but then I promised the Kaler that I would cut his corn, too. And, and, and then he got to thinking. He gets the farmer's almanac down, and he says to Grandma, you know what, there's going to be a full moon if the weather's clear. He says, when I get home from work, I can go to work and I can just work through the night so that I can, get, I can keep my promise and I can get the neighbor's corn in. And so Grandma makes him this coffee. It's like industrial waste. It's awful. Keeps him awake all night while he's out there working through the night under a full moon. Yeah, for years I've treasured that picture of my grandfather out in the night, working all night, under a full moon, geese honking overhead in the hills of central Ohio. Because there's something about a harvest that's very beautiful. There's something about a harvest that brings out the hard worker in a person. There's something about a harvest that brings out the cooperation. There's something about a harvest that's good. I love to watch a harvest, don't you? I want to watch a harvest here. I want to be involved in a harvest right here. Only God can do it. It must start with prayer. Just humble, obedient people saying, God, I see that, and I know that I couldn't do it myself. And so I'm going to get on my knees, and I'm just going to say, Lord, Lord of the harvest, will you send forth laborers into the harvest? I love to watch a harvest. I want to, I want to invite you today to respond to a public invitation. And if you don't know the Lord as your Savior, and I'm sure there are some here that you have questions and you need answers about that, then what I'm going to do today, we don't do it every Sunday, but we're going to sing a song here. And while the song's being sung, right while the song's being sung, if you would like somebody to help you, to explain the gospel to you, to help you understand how to be right with God, to know that you're right with God, to have a place in heaven when you die, we have counselors that will counsel with you today. And I want you to come during a song and I want you to shake my hand. It will be our little signal. When you come and take my hand, I'll know that you want a counselor, somebody to deal with you, somebody to talk with you. It would be a beautiful day to do that, wouldn't it? It's harvest time, and maybe it's harvest time for you. And then, Christians, I, I, uh, I've been praying a lot about this. I'm not going to stop talking about this. I am not going to stop talking about this. I am not going to stop talking about this. If it's bugging you, it's going to bug you real bad. Because I'm going to keep, and, and I'm not going to just tell you to do stuff I'm not doing. I'm going to give a part of my time.
to just trying to get out where people are. And, and I'll, if I have to make a fool of myself, I will. And uh, that's not unusual. And if it, whatever needs to be done, I would love to lead this great church in a, in a harvest of souls. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we, it would be, it would be wonderful. And you see that baptism, that baptistry being used all the time. And you hear the stories of the Lord changing people's lives. I know how you feel about that. I know you want to be a part of that. But what can happen is we can do a lot of Christian busyness and a lot of Christian busy work and a lot of good other stuff. And then we can kind of drift off course. And then after a while, it's the death wobble. So I wonder if you'd be willing to Say to the Lord, hey, I will pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers. Let me suggest some ways that you could do that. One, you come forward to the invitation right now, kneel down right here, and just pray. Just tell him, Lord of the harvest, send forth laborers into your harvest. Right here publicly. Sometimes it's good to do that, isn't it? You could get a partner, somebody that's here. You go to them and say, hey, pray with me. From I want to suggest that you get a, a prayer partner and you pray once a week, from now to Thanksgiving. Isn't that a good thing? You can think of harvest Thanksgiving, right? From now to Thanksgiving, just get a friend, a buddy, a sister, young people in the church. I dream about young people in the church who love Jesus Christ. I dream about young people in the church who want to be a witness. I dream about young people in the church that are telling their friends about Jesus Christ. And maybe you're a young person. You can say to another young person, hey, you and I, let's pray together once a week. And that's the way you could do it. Dads, that are Christian dads, you could say, that's what we're going to start doing in our home. And, and in our home, we're going to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into the harvest. I thought about this. And I'm going beyond myself a little bit because I'm just talking right now about what Jesus said and pray, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers. But I thought about this and I decided that what I'm going to do in my home is I'm going to take time with each one of my kids and with Lois and uh, I'm going to go over again how to draw that bridge illustration. I love to, dr- to explain the gospel by drawing the bridge illustration. And I'm going to go over that with everyone in my family. Everyone in my family is a dad. And I'm going to take responsibility to go over with everyone in my family how to draw the gospel out on a napkin for somebody. That's just one of the things I'm going to do. And maybe with them being ready like that, and them being ready, God will send some hungry soul across their path, and they can love them. And so while... Uh, we have this song. I invite you to stand, please, would you? And if you need the Lord and you need counsel, take my hand. You want to pray, come here to the altar and pray.